Podcastle, episode 308, for April 22nd, 2014. Gazing into the Carnalba Wax Eyes of the Future, by Keffy R. N. Curley. Rated R contains F-bombs and, well, peeps. I might even swear in this intro. You've been warned. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson and I... Hang on. I interrupt this Podcastle intro with an emergency bulletin of awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, the Hugo nominations are in and oh my god, our own Anne Leckie has been nominated. Yes, that's right, Anne Leckie's debut novel, Ancillary Justice, has been nominated for the Hugo Award. We're so, so happy for her. And you know who she's running against? The entire Wheel of Time saga. Holy crap, it's going to be the prophesied Dragon Reborn versus a sentient starship. Yeah, I'd buy ringside tickets for that one. Also, our former editor, Rachel Swirsky, was nominated again, this time for her short story, If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love. Congrats, Anne and Rachel. We're very, very happy for you both. Okay, marshmallows, let's go back to today's story. So, it's the week after Easter, right? A good week, because you walk into the grocery store, or Target, or what have you, and all the Easter candy is on sale. Stuff the Easter Bunny, or Easter Werewolf, couldn't offload onto you. Mmm. Cadbury eggs. Mini eggs. Caramel eggs. Cream eggs. I don't care if a magical bunny or werewolf somehow took on science in one. I love you. But hark, something is rotten in Target. Well, not rotten exactly. Sugar has a hard time rotting, but it feels rotten. The way they stare at me with those all-knowing Carnalba eyes, begging me to take them home with me. Which is weird and odd, because I don't take them home to put into my kids' Easter baskets before Easter. Why, sweet Jesus, would I invite these terrifying marshmallow peeps into my home after... Why would I do that to myself? So, anyway. Carnalba is a wax that's one of the ingredients in Peeps. Other ingredients include corn syrup, gelatin, potassium sorbate, natural flavors. Natural, huh? That's kind of weird. Podcastle is very proud to present... Gazing into the Carnalba Wax Eyes of the Future by Keffy R. M. Curley. Originally published in the anthology What Fates Impose, edited by Nyad Monroe, and published by Alliteration Inc. We featured Keffy R. M. Curley's work several times in the past, most recently with Five Bullets on the Banks of the River Saji. Keffy blogs at www.keffy.com and tweets at Keffy. Keffy's story, The Ghost of a Girl Who Never Lived, which was an escape pod a few years back, is going to be made into a short film by Waterloo Productions. And I'm really, really happy to say we've got another one of Keffy's stories coming up soon this summer. This story is read for you by a good one, the one and only John Maher, audiobook narrator and writer of the podcast novel Tales of the Left Hand. We'll have more for that for you later, after the show. A warning, 
in this intro, I may be making it sound like this is a fun, cute story. People, we are talking about peeps. This is going to get really fucked up, okay? We did fun last week with Easter Werewolf. You didn't think that was fun? Well, you haven't heard today's story. Okay, let's move on. Grab yourself a bag of peeps and enjoy the story. Gazing into the Carnalba Wax Eyes of the Future by Keffy R.M. Curley. Couple of things. One, marshmallow peeps actually taste better on the way up. Two, they have more grams of sugar than grams of mass. Three, their eyeballs don't dissolve in stomach acid. I'm hovering over a public toilet because my roommates are starting to think this is a disorder. I can't blame them. Maybe it is. I might have an unhealthy relationship with marshmallow or something. I've got toilet paper wrapped around my forearms because one is braced on the toilet seat and I'm leaning on the toilet paper holder. Every public toilet stall is coated in aerosolized feces. Even this one, tucked into the far back corner of the University Library building's fifth floor, near the tax code books. Not even the law students come in here. Nobody's noticed half the lights don't work. The soap dispenser never gets refilled. For the past three months, it's practically been my own bathroom. But there's probably still poop on everything. Not even thinking about the fact that I'm literally surrounded by shit is helping me hork up my future. Fuck. Besides the fact that I downed eight boxes of peeps for a reason, I don't want to digest that much sugar. I'm not sure my pancreas could take it. My legs are tired from crouching, so I slide the empty backpack under my knees. Boxes and cellophane crinkle. Even though I've touched the wall, I try to shove my finger down my throat, but that just gives me a gag reflex with no payoff. Come on, I mutter into the toilet bowl. The clean water ripples from my breath. All I need are six numbers. The peeps finally come back up of their own accord, a flood of sweet foam that forms swirling pastel pink-yellow-blue mounds, floating islands of partially digested sugar studded over with flecks of pep eyeballs. And then I'm standing at a track with a wad of worthless receipts in my hand. The races are long over. There's some guy sweeping under the seats, not looking me in the face. We're not alone. Thomas, my boyfriend. No, I can tell that in this version of the future, he's just the concerned ex. Puts his hand on my shoulder. Before he can say a word, I shrug out from under him. Don't even fucking start. It should have worked this time. It's still gambling, he murmurs, even if you think you have an advantage. Loan me cab fare or go away. I say. I come out of the vision, and I'm angry. I've seen races before, though not recently. Sometimes I've won, sometimes I've lost. Sometimes Thomas is still with me, and sometimes he's just along to watch. Either way, seeing races is a step backward. I kick the flusher so hard that I'm a little surprised it doesn't snap off. I don't think what I'm seeing is guaranteed to be the future. The visions are like dreams, except that what brings them on is looking at patterns I've spewed. The first few were right, though. They happened later, exactly the way I saw them. The first time was at a peep-eating contest. I started with a stack of peeps, a mix of pink and yellow, only the chicks. 
I picked up a box and looked at the nutrition facts, even though I wasn't as worried about what I was eating as I might have been if I was planning on keeping them down. Thirty-five grams of peeps. Thirty-six grams of sugar. Thomas had come along for moral support and because, well, I'm practically an EMT, which is going to be really handy when one of you stupid fucks ends up in a coma, I showed him the box. He shook his head. You're going to trust people who can't round the same way in two measurements to make something edible? There's nothing in these but sugar and a little wax. He pulled out his phone. I just want to make sure that I have this on video. Get ready to be famous on YouTube as the dumbass who ate peeps until he puked. I gave him a thumbs up and grinned at the camera. Why do you think I let you come along? Halfway into the hour time limit, I was shocking myself with the amount of foaming vomit I produced. Good job, Thomas said. He turned off the camera already. It turns out that after the first few heaves, puking people aren't interesting. I still had my head in the garbage bag when he explained his nothing over 40 seconds internet video theory. It smells like gutted unicorn, I said, peering into the bag at the soup of my stomach contents. And then, the first vision. I was standing in our apartment, the nice one we had up until I'd lost my last job. Thomas stood with his hands on my shoulders, holding on so tight that I couldn't pry his fingers free. You have to stop, he said. Fucking with this stuff? Trying to predict the future or whatever? It's not worth it. Let go of me. I've seen what it can do to people. Magic is dangerous. I just have to make it big once. Get one big tip I can use. I'm getting better at it. Disgusted, he let me go, waving me away. Don't even start with that bullshit. It's not bullshit, I said, and fuck you anyway. I'm tired of being poor. But by that time, I was back in the real world, and Thomas knelt next to the folding chair I sat in, holding a cup of water. He frowned. I think you need to drink more. We had that argument, like the world's worst deja vu, six months later, word for word. One time I saw a Greyhound bus hitting its brakes to avoid rear-ending a car, but the conditions were too wet and the bus was moving too fast, and it spun until it crunched to a stop. No, that's the view from the helicopter that watched the accident later. It was on TV. One time I was in the passenger seat and Thomas was driving, and he just rolled his eyes at the other drivers. They were rubbernecking at a wreck on the opposite side of the freeway, I leaned forward to turn up the radio, and Thomas said, Oh shit, before the crunch that accordioned our car between the bus and the back end of a semi. No, that's what I saw once, sure, but I sold that car after the vision, so it can't happen now. I changed things. You can always change things. The peep boxes don't fit into the garbage inside the bathroom, so I ditched them in one of the outdoor trash cans. A crow cork-corks at its friends, as if it thinks that I'm ditching something edible this time. I thought crows were supposed to be smart, but they don't seem to have figured out that my daily trips to this trash can are worthless. The change I have left over from buying out the stale 90% off Easter sale won't cover bus fare, so I walk to the other side of town, glad that it's not raining too hard. Someday, I'll only walk in the rain when I want to. Soon. 
Thomas and I live in a shitty house that probably should have been demolished years ago and that I can only figure isn't being sold to land developers because the owner is about as smart as a pile of rocks. The rent is something like $800 a month for the whole house, which should tell you something. There are holes in the floor so big that if you sit in this one chair, you can look down at whatever's going on in the basement. A variety of vermin are waging an ongoing turf war in the walls. Thomas and I live in the attic rooms, even though the windows won't stay shut in the summer. Downstairs, there's a revolving door of five or six different people. I'm not sure who's actually on the lease at this point, but we all scrape together the rent once a month. Thomas and I both hate living here, but neither one of us has had a job in three years, there's no unemployment, and there's a limit to how much you can pick up doing freelance. The back door always makes the loudest squeaks, but after sneaking off for my divination, it feels wrong to come in the front door. One of the downstairs roommates is digging through the cupboard, sorting canned foods that I haven't looked at in months. It's the cupboard of expired stuff that I think came from a former roommate who frequented the food bank. Bring home free food, put it in the cupboard, let it expire, rinse, repeat. I don't recognize the woman sorting cans. She must be new. You aren't going to eat any of that, are you? She doesn't look up, keeps sorting the cans into stacks. There doesn't seem to be any logic to the sorting. She says, Some of these cans are only one or two years expired, so they're probably fine, as long as the can isn't dented and rusty. Oh, yeah, Thomas was looking for you. My stomach aches, and not just from the puking. Upstairs, Thomas is sitting at the computer. It was the cheapest one he could afford a few years ago, and we've had to fix it a few times. There's even duct tape on the case. He looks up at me when I come in. I found your stash, he says. Seriously, Cody? Don't even start, I say. I'll get there. It's not like we don't have a lot of other options. I've tried saying I'm doing it for you in the past, but that pisses him off. I already know what he's going to say. You already know what I'm going to say, he says, so I'm not going to say anything. Knowing the future is basically the same thing as time travel. Every time I see a future that doesn't work out for me, or that does work but I can't figure out how to get to from where I am now, I puke up another one. And another. And another. And I'm starting to worry because the futures contradict each other more and more. I'm spewing paradoxes. But they used to be so precise. The futures used to be so right. Is fate naturally ambiguous, or is it becoming more so? Sometimes I lie awake at night and listen to Thomas breathe, and I wonder if reality is about to turn inside out. It's raining again, and I don't feel like walking to the fucking library. Whatever. Thomas didn't do anything stupid like throw out all the peeps I had stashed in the crawl space. He knows better. The only thing that would happen is that I'd scrape together the money to buy more. I don't even know the name of the guy in the kitchen when I shove past him to the bathroom, a plastic shopping bag of peeps in my hand. Does he even live here? He doesn't seem surprised to see me. He's got a can opener in one hand and a can of tomato soup in the other. I don't know how old it is, and I don't want to know. I haven't seen a can of soup without those pop-tops for years. But even though what he's about to eat is nasty red goo, his eyes slide down to the bag of peeps, and I can see him judging me. Asshole, 
I mutter. The patch of black mold on the ceiling over the clawfoot tub has started expanding, creeping down the wall, but nobody's bothered bleaching it yet. At least someone scrubbed the toilet recently, though that might have been me. It's hard to remember. I put the bag of peeps down on cracked linoleum and wash my hands. I'm getting so used to eating them that it takes fifty before I feel queasy and another ten before the world starts to slip sideways and they come up in a rush. And then I'm arguing with Thomas. We're in front of the convenience store on the corner, the one that always has the same three desiccated hot dogs in the hot dog spinner. He asks, Are you even listening to me? Of course I'm not. I don't care what we're arguing about right now. It could be anything, and I wouldn't care, because we're standing next to a rack of newspapers, and if I can get my hands on one, this future won't happen anyway. If I can just get the date and those six little numbers, I'll be done. I'll never have to eat a marshmallow peep again. Cody! I roll my eyes at him, reach under his arm for the newspaper. Don't you ever get tired of living in a house that's got seven people in it? He holds me back, probably thinking that I'm trying to get out of the argument by running off. What? I loop one finger in the fold of the paper, hook it off the stack. Our roommates... I say, you know, the ones downstairs. How many people even live down there anymore? Five? Six? Ten? I'm still holding the newspaper, about to flip it open, and Thomas says, What are you talking about? The only person living downstairs is Irene. And then it's over, too fast. I wake up on the grimy linoleum to the sound of someone slamming on the door. Fuck! At some point, there's a quiet vision, or dream or memory. I can't feel my body except for Thomas's forehead against mine and the puff of aspiration as he says, I haven't left you. Whatever you saw, it was wrong. We can work this out. Thomas has left me infinite times in infinite ways. He hasn't left me at all. I'm so close. I'm so fucking close. I gather up the boxes that are left. There'll be enough, I figure, because I feel sick to my stomach as it is. I'm coming out, I yell at the door. Jesus, fucking relax. The lock is stuck for a few seconds, partly because the door is at least a hundred years old, and because at some point someone painted over the latch. This house is such a shithole, but that's okay, because I'm getting out. Soon. I do some math in my head, trying to remember what taxes are on the take-home option. After taxes, what is it today? Ninety million? Hundred million? I'll get an accountant first, and we'll go on a vacation, and buy a house, and my parents will retire. The explanation I have for Thomas dies in my mouth somewhere among the sugary bile when I get the door open, though it wasn't him knocking. There's the guy from the kitchen I don't recognize, his eyes like blank television screens. Behind him, the kitchen is full and the old-school dining room, and even the living room. Like, while I was in the bathroom, someone decided to start a house party. But I don't recognize any of the people. And I think that I should figure out who they are and why they're there, but there's no time for that now. I shove past dead eyes and all the others, their bodies moving aside like punching bags. There's silence except for the sound of my breath and the rustle of the plastic bag. How many people even live in our house? The only person living downstairs is Irene. Whatever, future Thomas. It's not my problem right now.
I'm sitting on the shitty futon, but the apartment is mostly empty. There's nothing on the walls, and the TV is propped up on a collection of shoddy cardboard boxes. It's plugged into the wall, but it's the old-style cable. I'm holding Thomas's hand, squeezing out my anticipation into his flesh and bone, watching the balls ping around inside the machine, waiting to see the numbers chosen. One ball, two, and I think, this is it. And then there are six balls with six numbers. They're announced. They're flashing on the screen. But this is just like those dreams when you're reading, but the dream text is meaningless. I can't tell what any of them are. I'm lying on the cold bathroom tile, awakening to the burning sweetness in my throat. I roll onto my back, my legs cramped and bent against the tub. I have to stop. Thomas is right. I have to stop this. I tell myself, it's just as well. I tell myself that knowing the future can only fuck up the present. I tell myself that I tried. Ha. Another vision. I'm emptying duffel bags of small bills onto our bed, and Thomas is getting ready to film 40 seconds of Cody swimming in cash. But I can't get there, not without the numbers. Another. I'm walking down the side of a highway, thumb out. My arm is so sunburned that the scorched skin is glossy in the light. I twist my ankle out there. Fine. I won't hitchhike. And another. I'm staring one of the peeps in the eye, glaring at it like that brown dot of wax is keeping secrets from me. The sugar crystals are bitter sandpaper on my tongue, but I swallow it down, and down, and down. And welcome back. You know, before this episode, I did some peeps and threw them back up and saw this story might put some of you off peeps for a little while. Well, my work here is done. Before we get to feedback, a little administrative note. A couple weeks back, someone contacted us on Twitter and said, Hey, Podcastle, what's up? You just ran seven stories in a row by men. Where are the women authors? I have to admit, I got a bit worried because although gender parity is a big deal to us here, Anna and I have been really focusing more on fantastic stories by diverse authors and diverse stories. So I looked back at our numbers and was a little bit nervous. And then I looked back some more and I'm happy to say that it was actually a mistake. There was no seven story streak. Just for the record, in 2013, Podcastle ran 29 feature stories that were written or co-written by men and 27 stories that were written or co-written by women. Those numbers are, well, they're pretty good, I think. They could be better. And I don't want any of you to think that we're slouching on this, really. They could be better. This is something that's important to us at Podcastle, something that we're going to be watching in the future. That said... I hope those numbers reflect that we are a podcast, a market, a portal of fantastic fiction that revels in diversity. Speaking of diversity, we need your help. We're constantly on the lookout for new readers to help us match some of the stories we buy and make them feel more authentic. It'd feel a little weird to have a British narrator reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know what I mean? Just an example off the top of my head. 
So we're looking for Chinese-American narrators, male and female. We're looking for a guy who can read Arabic. We're looking for Latinos and Latinas. If you've been listening and you want to read for us, please email us at editor at podcastle.org. Thank you. Okay, onward to feedback. This week it's for Madeline Yale Wins The Little Room, read by Eric Luke. This was a story of a mysterious room that occasionally appeared to family members in a house and just as often did not. Some people were a little bit frustrated by the lack of resolution. For example, Moon Goddess said, I just screamed a swear word beginning with F at the top of my lungs in the car when this story ended. That was a quite enjoyable, if frustrating, story. The ending did feel like some Twilight Zone stuff, and we can't even ask the author what the truth was. She died in 1918. Being of a more sci-fi bent myself, I began to feel a sort of parallel universe explanation. Each visit would take the visitor to a different house in the same location. This is why the ants never had a memory of any change, because from their point of view, nothing had ever changed. Hmm, interesting. Finrex gave a fascinating observation on why some people saw the room, while others did not. What is behind the door requires belief plus an imminent visit. The little room, in this case, manifests for innocence and belief and wonder. The china cabinet manifests for proper things in their places they should be. I think this is supported by the brighter backstory of the little room and its contents, while the china closet supports heirlooms and traditions, while little, the little room, representing wonder, is larger than the china closet, representing tradition. There's probably a few more layers here worth considering. The husband at the beginning never believed, but instead was indulging a fantasy of his new brides, so we see the china closet. The mother invests her belief in her daughter, and they both see the little room. Of the cousins at the end, one was a believer and one was a skeptic. Their disagreement and heartfelt belief warped the house to conform to both views. As it could not sustain both, the house was destroyed by their conflicting worldviews. This would be a good spot for someone more clever than I to insert a metaphor. Wow. Thank you so much for those comments. Head over to forum.escapeartists.net to regurgitate your thoughts on our stories. Just try to do it politely. Nobody wants peep all over their avatars, you know? And if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Our authors rely on your generosity to keep them off the peeps and observe the food pyramid worshipping all its different groups. Your money helps us bring you the best, the most interesting, the most diverse, the most fascinating fantasy fiction, week after week. Any amount of donations are appreciated. You can do a one-time donation if that's easier. Subscriptions, ah, subscriptions. Those help us sleep well at night. You can sign up for one of those for as little as $2 a month at our websites. Thank you. Oh, hey, and if, like me, you love the story's narration by the fantastic John Maher, I've got some very, very good news for you, like 40 hours of it. As I mentioned, John is the author of the swashbuckling, fun second world fantasy, Tales of the Left Hand. But don't take my word for it. Here's John. With the larger mainland powers to the north and the expanding, aggressive Saber Empire to the south, the various island realms of the Frees have learned to conduct their politics with subtlety, 
preferring daggers and secrets to cannon and coin. An informal tradition has sprung up among the rulers of these islands, where the person appointed to coordinate that realm's political maneuvers is generally known as the right hand. <laughs> A corollary of that tradition that few will openly discuss regards the rank given to the person who has to carry out those maneuvers, sometimes diplomat, sometimes assassin, but always a spy, that person is known as the Left Hand. Tales of the Left Hand is an ongoing fantasy series with swashbuckling, intrigue, and a dash of magic, written and narrated by John Maher. Book 3 is now being released as a weekly podcast at talesoftheleftband.com, where you'll also find links to complete versions of books 1 and 2 in both ebook and audio formats. All that and more at talesoftheleftband.com. Thanks, John. Look, for those of you looking for some exciting fantasy adventure to listen to, Tales of the Left Hand is a really excellent bet. Also, like I said, with book 3 out just now, there's about 40 hours of it, all free, all at John's website. 40 hours. That's like almost as long as that Robert Reed story that Escape Pod just ran. Tales of the Left Hand. Check it out. Well, that was our show for this week. On behalf of all of us at Podcastle, sound producer Peter Wood, associate editors LaShawn Wanick and Graham Dunlop, and your editors-in-chief Anna Schwind and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week with a story by Peter S. Beagle. Until then, this is Dave Thompson for Podcastle, reminding you, you are what you eat. We'll see you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, Youth is like having a big plate of candy. Sentimentalists think they want to be in the pure, simple state they were in before they ate the candy. They don't. They just want the fun of eating it all over again. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in a week. <laughs>